Well, in that passage, we find Jesus around the Passover table with his disciples. At this point, Judas has been dismissed, and it's as though a weight has been lifted from Jesus. And he now, now that the traitor has been dismissed, he begins to entrust himself to those that are his. And it was, I'd never thought of this. I read this week, one commentator suggested that Jesus likely said things after Judas dis, was dismissed that Judas had never heard. Because Jesus was opening himself up and trusting himself to those whom he loved. And we see this pattern in John's gospel. All the way back in chapter 2, we are told that many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them, or he did not entrust himself to them. Because they weren't really his disciples. But now here are his disciples, and he is entrusting himself to them. They are sinful, they are selfish, they are weak, they are going to fail him in a matter of hours. But he loves them, and he ministered, ministered to them. And friends, this is not unlike what he does for us each and every Lord's Day. He gathers us, his weak Sinful disciples who have failed him, who will fail him. He gathers us together in his house. And like he did so many years ago, he ministers to us. He seeks to comfort us. He wants us to see his glory. He wants us to see his father's love for us. And we will walk through this passage under three divisions this morning, each of which leads to the other. We find that in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus first responds to a question that no one wanted to ask. And his response to that question then leads to Thomas's question, which then leads to Philip's request. And as Jesus leads us through this, he is really communicating one thing. He is the one who makes God known. He is the way to the Father. He is how we know the Father. He is the exact representation of the Father and the radiance of his glory. And Jesus says today, focus your faith in me. And you will have all that you need. And I think it's, it's worth noting, again, we, we thought about how in the upper room we really see the heart of the Savior towards sinners. And here we find Jesus. The hour of the cross is approaching. He felt this enormous burden, and yet his desire is to help his weak disciples. His desire is to minister to them and to comfort them. And his desire for you is the same today. So let's first consider Jesus' answer to this unspoken question. Now, what was the unspoken question? Well, the disciples were thinking, how do we keep it together? 
I, I pointed out to you all the troubling things that had happened. They were no doubt thinking, our Savior's going away. What do we do with our anxious, troubled, disturbed hearts? Jesus responds to the question that nobody wanted to ask. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And J.C. Ryle wrote this about our Lord's statement here. He said, we have first in this passage a precious remedy against an old disease. That disease is trouble of heart. That remedy is faith in Christ. Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes and partly from outward causes. Partly from the body and partly from the mind. Partly from what we love and partly from what we fear. The journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a valley of tears. Jesus offers to us the remedy for our troubled hearts. And Jesus knows our hearts. He knows how often our hearts are troubled. And it should comfort us that this was a state that our Lord was well acquainted with in the days of his flesh. We're told on multiple occasions leading up to this that the Lord Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And it's clear that that trouble had, it had penetrated the room. The disciples no doubt felt the weight of Jesus' sorrow. But they were likely troubled in heart for for other reasons, partly because of their sin. Remember how Jesus had exposed their sin when he washed their feet? Well, he was in that act revealing his love and his grace and his cleansing of sinners. It was also an excruciating expose of their sin and their pride. And then Jesus says, one of you will betray me. I mean, imagine the anxiety. It's clear that they did not know who it was. They went around the table and says, is it I, Lord? Imagine the anxiety. Who was it? And then another shadow falls. Jesus says to Peter, you will deny me three times. And on top of all of that, probably the most disturbing, troubling thing was Jesus saying, essentially, I am leaving you. And where I am going, you cannot come now. We can understand why their hearts were troubled and Jesus desires to minister to them in their troubled hearts. And again, Friends, this is not unlike what we deal with as believers on a daily basis almost. 
There are troubling things that we deal with on a daily basis. And like the disciples must have felt in this upper room where it was just one trouble on top of another on top of another. How often we can feel the same way. We can be troubled and weighed down by our sin. We can be disturbed about our lack of faith. We can feel like Christ is distant from us. And like these disciples, how often we feel like it's just one troubling thing after another and we're just struggling to keep it together. If that describes you today, Jesus desires to soothe your troubled heart. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And probably a better translation of the Greek is, you believe in God, believe also in me. You already believe in God, but I want you to focus your faith in me. And in saying this, he's giving us the remedy for our troubled hearts. What do we do when we are overwhelmed and discouraged by our sin? What do we do when, when God feels distant from us? What do we do when we feel like we're overwhelmed with trouble after trouble? Well, Jesus' remedy for our troubled hearts is Jesus Christ. Jesus' remedy for your troubled heart today is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you believe in God, but I want you to focus your faith in me. Focus your faith in me, because as the mediator between God and man, I will make the Father's loving, gracious Tender care known to you. And this reminds us, Fred, we, we know how the unbelieving world talks about faith. It's just some abstract thing. It's not focused on an object. But I think if we look at our lives closely, all too often we can have that same kind of general faith. Well, I have faith that things are just going to work out somehow. Jesus is saying, no, faith has an object. And the key, the remedy for your troubled heart is to focus your faith in me. And I think what's worth noting here, I mean, we look at the disciples in the upper room here, we find men who... They understood so little. We see them fail the Lord Jesus Christ. One betrayed him, one denied him, and all of them forsook him and fled. And yet, what do we see after the resurrection of Jesus? We see these men who knew so little at this time become powerful preachers of the gospel. And they proclaim Christ boldly to the ends of the earth. And these same disciples who essentially crumbled in the moment of trial 
They became men of courage and poise. And friends, the encouragement to us is Jesus can do the same for you and for me. He can take people like us who understand so little and he can transform us to live lives that proclaim his glory. And how many times we feel like we have just crumbled during a trial. Jesus can strengthen us and he can give us that spirit wrought courage and poise as we focus our faith in him. But then Jesus gives, I think, one of the most beautiful illustrations of his love and his care. Look at verses 2 and 3. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now what we could often overlook here is that Jesus is using an illustration that had to do with the ancient practices of engagement and marriage. In, in this time period, if I, if I wanted to marry Janine, I would have to go to her dad and you know, pay, pay the price. But her dad would also expect that I would go back to my parents' house and I would essentially build a big addition onto the house. And it was only when I was finished with that addition that I could go and take my bride to myself. That's what Jesus has in view here. He's saying, look, I, yes, I am going away. But I will come back for my bride at my appointed time. That where I am, you may be also. You see, this is a great comfort for us as people who are away from the physical presence of Jesus. He is saying, yes, I have gone away from you, but I am preparing a place for you, and I so desire that where I am, you may be also. And as we'll see in more detail next week in, in the next half of this chapter, what do we do in the meantime while we're waiting to go to our heavenly home where the Holy Spirit comes and He makes a home in our hearts for Christ and for the Father? But then Jesus makes a statement that raises another question. He says, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is a skilled physician. And he is leading his disciples to ask more questions so that he can expose their, their wrong, unbiblical thinking and minister to them. So secondly, let's think about Jesus' answer to Thomas' question. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
here's Doubting Thomas. Now, I think, I think this guy gets a bad rap because I think that likely he got the bad rap because he was the one that asked the question that no one else wanted to ask. He was probably asking a question that was on everyone else's mind. And in leading Thomas to ask this question, Jesus puts his finger on two sins that are common to all of us. First, we see here how Thomas was walking by sight and not by faith. He was walking by sight and not by faith. And we we thought about that in our reading of the law, how prone we are to do that. Is that not what we see at the end of the gospel? What does he say? He was was focused on what he could see and feel. Unless I see, I won't believe. Unless I can feel the nail holes, I won't believe. You see, he wasn't listening to Jesus and taking him at his word. Thomas is what we would call a pessimist. And and maybe some of us excuse our lack of faith by saying, well, I'm just a pessimist. A pessimist is just a person who is trying to excuse their weak faith. And secondly, we see Thomas was thinking of faith in an impersonal way. Jesus said to Thomas, you know the way. And we... We can see what his thought process was. The the way. Okay, what's the way? Was it geographical? Was it following a set of moral teaching? Was it something in his teaching that we missed? And the answer, it is none of those. It is a person. It is a living way. A person who is right in front of him. Friends, how often we do the same thing. We can miss and lose sight of the glorious object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus answers answers his question with one of his most famous I am sayings. This is the, the sixth one. We have one more to go in In John's Gospel, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is declaring that he is the exclusive way to the Father. If you're familiar with, with literature, this, these three terms uh, are, are sometimes called a hendiatrist, and that simply means one through three. Jesus is teaching us one truth using three terms and three facets of this truth. He's saying, I am the true and living way to God. 
Jesus is the way to the Father. He grants access to the Father by His life and death and resurrection. And then He is the truth. The word is used here not so much as the opposite of what is false, but in terms of He's the real thing. I am the authoritative representative and revealer of God. I am the fulfillment of all of the types and shadows. I'm the true sacrifice. I'm the true priest. I'm the true temple. And he is the living way to eternal life. Not just the way to eternal life, but the person who is the way. Thomas Akempis, in his fairly well-known work, The Imitation of Christ, he, he wrote on this passage, he said, Without the way, there is no going. <clears throat> Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow. I am the truth which you must believe. I am the life for which you must As Jesus leads us to the Father at our salvation, but all our life long here on earth, He continues to reveal the Father to us. He continues to be for us the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> but finally, Jesus' answer to Thomas' question leads to Philip's short-sighted request. So let's think about his response to Philip's request. Look at verses 8 through 11. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Philip's request reveals that he had the same issue that everyone else in this room had a full revelation of the Father was sitting right in front of him at that table and he missed it. All the teaching that he had heard from Jesus, Jesus is essentially saying, that's my Father's word to you. And again, I think this is another important Reminder, warning to us that when we come together to worship the Lord, when we come to the Lord's table, not to miss the object of our faith. Not to miss the Lord Jesus who essentially by His Spirit sits across from us at the table. Not to lose 
sight of Jesus and how Jesus reveals to us the character of our Heavenly Father. Uh, one commentator suggested, and I didn't check this out, but he suggests that this is the largest concentration of mentions of the Father found anywhere in the Bible. The Father is referred to 20 times in chapter 14. Jesus is concerned. He wants us to know the gracious character, the gracious care of his Father in heaven. And I think this is extremely important to us as American Christians because it reminds us that Jesus did not come to make the Father loving. And I think many of us, if we kind of look back at our, our life in the church, we would have to admit we've held the unconscious belief that well, God and the Father in the Old Testament was a God of, of wrath and fury and not a God of love. And Jesus came to make the Father loving. But what did we read in Jeremiah 31? What did the Father say? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Gerhardus Voss posed the question, how do we know that the Father has always loved us and will not stop loving you? The answer is because he never started loving you. His love is eternal, everlasting, no beginning, no end. And it's sad that we can think that way, that the Father, Jesus came to make the Father loving from probably the most well-known verse in the Bible John 3.16, what does it say? For God, the Father, so loved the world that he sent his Son to die for us. I think this helps us make sense. We, we read the Gospels and Jesus fulfills those prophecies of him being meek and mild and never raising his voice in the street and yet we hear him deal with the scribes and the Pharisees and there is a tenacity and an anger. And why is that? Because they were marring the character of his heavenly father. Making him out to be an unloving tyrant and tying burdens on people's backs that they couldn't bear. And Jesus was saying, that is not what my heavenly father is like. Now consider Jesus' question here to Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? I want to challenge you to insert your name there. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Jason? You still really don't Know me. Are you still this faithless? 
Does that tug at your heart a little bit? I think some of us have had the, had the experience where, where someone has accused us of something or said something to us or doubted us, and you're like, do, do you even know me? That happened to me on my wedding day. At our wedding reception, Janine's grandfather came up to me and read me the riot act. And first of all, I'm thinking, it's a little late for this. <laughs> but I came away from that conversation a bit hurt, thinking, you know, I've known you for a while. Do you not know me? You don't know what kind of person I am? You don't think I'm going to take care of your granddaughter? Like th- there's, a, there's a hurt when that happens to us. And I think this should tug at our hearts. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? And yet there's a difference between us and Jesus because we so often in those situations want to say, forget it, forget you. But Jesus' response is, you still don't know me? Come again to me. Come to me. Let me help you. Let me minister to you. Let me show you the Father's love for you. You see, these disciples in the upper room, they they almost provide a composite picture of us. Our hearts are often troubled. We so often are walking by sight and not by faith. We've walked with Jesus for a long time, and yet, There are days that we don't know him as we should. But Jesus says, now come. Come to me. I am the remedy for your troubled heart. I am the remedy for your weak faith. Let me show you the love of the Father in heaven. Focus your faith in me. And you will have all that you need. And friends, as we gather Lord's Day by Lord's Day, this is what Jesus does for us. He he entrusts himself to us, to often faithless, weak, sinful disciples, and he wants to show us his grace. So let's leave with this question today examine our hearts, and may it cause us to come afresh to Jesus when he says, I have been with you so long, and you still don't know me? You still don't know the Father as your loving, gracious, caring, heavenly Father? Let's ponder that. Let it tug at your hearts, but then go to him that he might again show you more of himself. Let's pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. A love so great that you sent your son to die for us and your Holy Spirit to live within us. Lord, we are people that are troubled in heart. Help us by your spirit to focus our faith in the Lord Jesus.
Lord, we pray that you would comfort us today in him by your spirit. Lord, we pray that we would be forgiven and cleansed of our sins, of walking by sight and not by faith, of losing sight of the glorious object of our faith. And Lord, we pray that you would reorient us Cause us to live in light of your promises and your presence in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.